Well, do turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 33. Somebody told me yesterday they jogged listening to my Isaiah sermons. You will not have heard this one. Uh, This is not a, a repeat. This is a specially prepared one for you. It's always more scary to speak to other ministers, uh, and therefore this one has been gone over again and again and again and again, uh, and rather revised again this morning twice, and uh, so frankly, I have no idea where we're going with it, but <laughs> that, that remains to be seen. I want to, I want to read the end of the chapter, uh, and then we'll begin at the very beginning, which is a good place to start. But let's begin by reading at the end, verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your cords hang loose, they cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided, even the lame shall take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. What was the condition of the church to which Isaiah was writing and to which he was preaching? One word stands out in the early chapters of the book, and that is the word unbelief. They trusted the nations rather than trusting the Lord. When they were in danger, when they felt Threatened when they felt they were going to lose the land or lose the Davidic dynasty, rather than turning to the Lord, they would turn to the nations for support, for safety, for security. They turned to their false alliances as well as to false gods. They took matters into their own hands. And so you have the alliances with Assyria early on, and this, in fact, is the background to this chapter, and the alliance with Egypt, both of which were utter disasters. And the relevance to our day is surely the the same thing. If you look at the church today in America or anywhere in the Western world, what is the characteristic feature of the church? Well, it is a massive failure of nerve resulting in a failure of faith in the living God. Why else? Why else would the church turn away from the doctrine of creation and syncretistically superimpose upon the biblical religion the idea of evolution? 
Why would we reject Moses and Christ and Paul and jettison the idea of Adam as the historical figure, but also as the first man? Why would churches adopt a paradigm of clutching wildly at the culture for security and salvation? Every bit as much as Israel turned to the other nations for security. You can read Isaiah, and every time you read of the relationship between Judah and Jerusalem and the nations, the more you read about Judah and Jerusalem being addressed by the prophet as if they were, in fact, simply just one other of the nations, you see in that very comparison something of a picture of the church of Jesus Christ today. So when we come to chapter 33, Isaiah has announced to the church of his day that God is waiting to hear from a disobedient church. Back in chapter 30, verse 18, and we'll look at this more fully at the moment, the Lord waits to be gracious. Here were God's covenant people who were sharing all the external benefits of the temple and the law and the prophets. And throughout this book, Isaiah has exposed their consistent rebellion against their covenant Lord. And at the root of their sin, he's demonstrated that it was the sin of unbelief in the sufficiency of God. And when you stop trusting in God, you end up trusting in anything. So when the Assyrians and the northern Israelites were amalgamating together in an alliance, there was the temptation to look to Assyria to come to the aid of Judah. And when the Assyrians became so powerful and influential, then they turned to Egypt. And both of those foreign adventures, as it were, ended up being a disaster for Judah and Jerusalem. Well, it's into that context then that Isaiah writes this chapter. I say it's in the context of Assyria, Assyria, which has, uh, has become stronger. Sennacherib, who is the king, has just uh, done the dirty on Judah and Jerusalem. He's asked for tribute. Uh, they paid the tribute. He didn't keep his end of the bargain. The people came back totally heartbroken and despairing, saying, how did that happen? How did that happen? And instead of trusting in the Lord, they're now in the depths of utter despair. And Isaiah writes to them now this chapter, and in many ways, there is no particular historical reference. He's keeping it, uh, in a sense, apart from uh, the particulars of the case, because he's making a general principle here that's that's applicable to the people that he's speaking to, but he wants it to be applicable in other periods of history as well. And his point in this chapter is quite simple. God, the Lord, waits to hear from His people. He waits to save and deliver His people, and He waits to be with His people. Now, if you look at verse 1, you'll find that there's a change in the flow of the prophecy in verse 1. It begins with the word for cursing and woe, a word that's already appeared in Isaiah for six times. Each time that word is used, here it's translated in the ESV, ah, which is a a very weak 
translation. I think whenever I hear the word ah, I think what you do when you go to the dentist and he tells you to open your mouth, it doesn't really convey an idea of woe or cursing or how dreadful is that or the opposite of blessing. Woe, proud crown of Ephraim, chapter 28. Woe to the city where David encamped, chapter 29. Woe to those who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, 2915. Woe, stubborn children, chapter 30. Woe to those who go down to Egypt, chapter 31. In every one of those previous occurrences of this word, they have been aimed at the people of God, at the church of their day. God has delivered His message through the prophet to His people and said, because of your unbelief and your rebellion, and because you're turning everywhere and anywhere except to the Lord, God is going to curse you. You cry out to His name. You use the name, the Lord, the Lord. But using the name, the Lord, the Lord, is not going to change anything so long as you don't turn to the Lord. And here in chapter 33, suddenly there is this massive change in the whole tone and tenor of the book. God is going to intervene, but this time the object is going to be the enemy of God's people. Firstly, Assyria later on Babylon, no doubt, but every other enemy of God's people. He's described there as the destroyer, the destroyer, that is, of God's people. And the warning is given to the destroyer that their fate is sealed. When you've ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you've finished betraying, they will betray you. This was always the way it was going to be. This was always the way God had said it would happen. They need never have panicked They need never have run off to these now enemies, but once they thought were friends, because now the tables are turned. If only they had waited, if only they had trusted, they would have spared themselves so much misery. Now, what has caused this change here in chapter 33, verse 1? Why this change of tune? And the answer is that the prophet who is writing on behalf of the people here and expressing the kind of behavior and the kind of response to God that his people should emulate and follow, the prophet listens to his own preaching. He listens to his own preaching. The Word of God he takes to himself. And he had heard the Word of God. We looked at it for a moment back in chapter 30 and verse 18. Here was the Word of God. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, He exalts Himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Now, what does the prophet do? He takes the Word of God seriously. What does the prophet do? He believes God. He believes God. Has God said He is waiting to be gracious? What is a disobedient people who've turned their back on God most need? What does the church most need when it's turned in unbelief from the Word of God and put its confidence in other things and other places and other ideas and other philosophies? What does the church need? It needs the grace of God. It needs the unmerited favor of God. It needs that gracious intervention of God. When had God said He would be gracious? Verse 19 of chapter 30, He will surely be gracious to you at the sound 
of your cry. He will be gracious to you when you pray to him. He will be gracious to you when you call upon his name. That was God's word to his church in Isaiah's day. So what do you do with a promise like that? Well, you pray. And so here is Isaiah praying, O Lord, be gracious to us. We will wait for you. God has said, the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So Isaiah takes the words of God and he turns them back upon God. And he says, you said that you would be gracious. We need you to be gracious to us. You said you would be gracious if we waited on you. Now we're pausing. Now we're coming to wait. All these other times, we have run ahead of you. All these other times, we've taken matters into our own hands. All these other times, we've tried to solve our own problems and be our own Savior. But now this time, this time we're going to pause. We're going to look to you. We're going to call on your name. And we're going to cast ourselves utterly upon you and ask you to be gracious to us. You see how the believer prays. This is how a believer always ought to pray. Our prayer should be informed by the language and the ideas and the promises and the commands of God's Word. That's what takes prayer to another dimension. Instead of these petty little requests that we make from time to time, praying for Aunt Jessie's sore toe, we should come with these great petitions to God. And that's what Isaiah teaches us. Look at verse 3. He reminds himself of what kind of God this is to whom we pray. The believer always does that. What kind of God is he? Well, he's a a God who just has to make a noise and the peoples flee. He's the kind of God that just has to lift himself. He just has to move and the nations are scattered. The battle is over before it begins. And you notice how the prophet's mind is occupied with God in verse 3. He says, the Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And this God will be the foundation. You know, he's thinking about the heavenly Zion. He's thinking about the eternal Zion, the city of God in Isaiah. This word Zion, as it's developed, becomes more and more focused on that heavenly Zion, that place where God is. God will be the foundation of that new Zion. He will be the stability of our times. He goes on to say there in verse 6, Abundance of salvation and wisdom and knowledge, the fear of the Lord, is Zion's treasure. You can see that what Isaiah is doing is he's bringing together other parts of his own book. He's bringing together the Word of God here. He's reflecting back on Isaiah 11, where it talks about the Messiah, and the Messiah is the one who, is, who has wisdom and knowledge and brings abundance of salvation. And here he is again, the Messiah, Christ in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is the one who is lifted up. He's made very high. He's exalted. He has a great victory, and he fills Zion, the holy city. He fills it with righteousness. That's his great plan and purpose. The Lord is waiting to hear from his people. Our purpose today is that we should pray in a few minutes. And as we come to pray, we have to remind ourselves God is waiting for His people 
to pray to him. We used to have a saying when I was growing up, Sunday morning tells you how popular the church is, the Sunday evening service tells you how popular the preacher is, and the prayer meeting tells you how popular God is. Well, if that is the register, if there's even a, if there's even a minute piece of truthfulness in that, what is that saying about the church of Jesus Christ today? We have all kinds of lectures, don't we, about how to read the culture and how to modify ourselves so that we relate to the culture and how we make ourselves so accessible so that we can reach the culture that we've forgotten that actually the first priority of the church is to reach God and to reach out to God and to call in God's name that God by His mercy may hear us and respond. What happens when Isaiah calls on God? Well, he goes on to say in verses 7 to 16 that God is waiting to act for His people. Those, who, those whom He hears, He acts for. Let me just run down through this. In verses 8, 7 to 9, He describes the kind of desolation that was existing among the people of God. They turned to all kinds of agreements. They looked in all kinds of directions. They had sent important people and sent them off to get as much training as they could and, and education as they could and make as many deals as they could. Verse 7 is referring to the deal with Sennacherib that, that didn't work out. Uh, humanly speaking, they tried all of these things, but their heroes were helpless in the end. Their diplomats were pointless. Their treaties were worthless. Their enemies were ruthless, and the people are now hopeless. That was the state of the church. But then we come to verse 10. God has summarized the state of the church. Now it's at its lowest, lowest ebb. They've tried everything. It describes in verse 7 to 9 the bankruptcy of every alternative to the kingdom of God. And then, verse 10, Now, now I will arise, says the Lord. There is this moment. There is in the purpose of God this great now. They should never have been at haste. They should never have been rushing here and there finding solutions to all their problems in their own energy. They should have been waiting for this moment, for this now in the purposes of God. For there are in all of God's purposes these moments, these hours of which Jesus was so conscious. These, this fullness of time that was to come when God would send His Son into the world to be born of a woman made under the law that He might redeem those who were under the law. There is in the purpose of God a now. And you notice now God says, I will arise. He is getting up to engage the enemy. Now I will be exalted, he says, using the same language that's used of the Messiah in chapter 52. He will exalt himself. He will exalt himself now. Three times that word, now, appears in this passage. And for all their unbelief and certainty, there is always a divine now, and we need to wait for the moment. You know the people in the dark period after the so-called return from exile that never really ended anything, certainly never ended the exile. 
there were people who took this word seriously, this idea of waiting on the Lord. You find them, don't you, at the story of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, there were people in Jerusalem who had listened to Isaiah's prophecy, and they were waiting, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And there was then, do you remember, there was this ultimate divine now. I think it's the now to which Isaiah is referring here. When a man takes a little baby in his hands and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. God is waiting to act for His people who turn to him. We mistake his patience with indifference. We mistake the inactivity of God for his indifference. For actually, he is never inactive. He had not been inactive all these years that Isaiah had been ministering to these people. Isaiah the prophet has been going to them day after day after day. God's been speaking to them. That's not indifference. That's the best thing and kindest thing that God can do for humanity. Send preachers to them. Send those who, analogous with a prophet, bring the Word of God to them. Bring the Word of God into their lives. Break it down for them and apply it to their hearts. That's not inaction. That's not indifference. And he'd been disciplining them. All these hardships they'd endured, the disappointments they'd encountered from Assyria and Egypt and so on, all of these things, they did not happen by chance. Those were God's chastisements. They were His disciplines. He was upsetting the even flow of their life, disturbing their confidence because their confidence was misplaced. And all the upsets that we're experiencing today as a church, surely here in America, surely today these things that are upsetting our church life and our national life are in the providence of God meant to speak to His own people. They're the people for whom Christ is reigning over the nations. Everything that is going on is in the hands of the sovereign Lord who says to the destroyer, you can do your destroying, but there'll come a day when I will end your destruction. God had not been inactive. He had been working. And here is God raising Himself, alerting Himself. I will arise, He says. Now I will lift Myself. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be exalted. What kind of work does God exalt Himself to do? Well, he comes to do a work that, first of all, begins in the hearts and minds of men and women. He he encourages men and women to hear, verse 13, whether they're far away or close at hand. That is, whether they belong to the Jews or whether they come from the nations. He calls on them to see what God has done. He tells them to be in awe of what God has done. He has manifested His presence And what has God done this for? He has done this for an ethical purpose. He always does that. Hear you who are far off, and what I have done, and you that are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling, has seized the godless. This is what they're saying. Who among us can dwell with consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Here are people 
And God, by His Spirit, is now turning His attention to them. And what are these people doing? These people are repenting. These people are seeing what they have done. They're realizing what it is that has been happening in their lives. All of these burnings, all of these assaults, all of these attacks that have been taking place are nothing compared to everlasting burning. And as they compare and contrast earthly discipline with divine judgment... Suddenly, they're, they're taking stock, and they're wanting to who can walk righteously, who can walk in the presence of God, who can be in the presence of God. They're afraid, you see, verse 14. The answer of verse 15 is to the question of verse 14, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? Here's the answer. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions and shakes his hands, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing a bloodshed, shuts his eyes from looking at evil, he will dwell in the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of the rocks. His bread will be given him. In other words, he'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto him. That's the flow of the passage. These people have repented. God says to them, here's the way now you are to live. Remember, the flow of the passage is God is gracious. He shows his grace first. He encourages his people to call upon his name. They do so in faith. As they call upon his name in faith, understanding how far short of his glory they have become, they begin to pour out their tears as they recognize how sinful they have been, how far they have fallen short of the glory of God. They're repenting of their sin. And now God says to these, his people, to whom he has been gracious, this is the way now. You want to walk with me. This is the way. And he spells it out righteously. Walk righteously, speak uprightly. You can't disengage biblical practical, personal holiness from the grace of God in Isaiah. And those that try to disengage it elsewhere need to come back to the first prophet of the gospel and listen to him carefully. So the Lord wants to act for his people. He wants to act for his people so that he might do a work in them, do you notice? He wants to act for us so that he would do a work, first of all, in our hearts and minds, that he would take away that evil heart of unbelief, first of all, that he would break us down in repentance before him for our sins. You remember Isaiah set the tone for all of us when we come into the presence of God. Here he is before the thrice holy God, and as he stands there, he cannot for one nanosecond say, these people have sinned. As he comes before Almighty God, he has to say to Almighty God, I have sinned. I have sinned. You read Daniel's great prayer. Seventy years have passed. He's reading Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, after 70 years, people will repent and they'll call on my name. And Daniel looks around. He doesn't see anybody repenting and calling on God's name. But then he thinks, well, this is the Word of God, so therefore it's the Word of God to me. So what does Daniel do? He starts to pray. There's that great prayer in Daniel chapter 9 based on 
uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, and he calls out to God. And how does he call out to God? He says, we have sinned. We have defiled your name. We have broken your rules. We have dishonored your name. We have not believed. He recognizes that he cannot simply pray for those pagan, unbelieving people out there in our churches. That we have to come before God as those who recognize the corporate nature of sin. We have sinned. We have sinned. We've been unbelieving. We ourselves need to repent and pour out our repentance to God. And not only does the Lord want to work with His people now and act on their behalf, but but ultimately the Lord wants to be with His people. That's really what where we pick it up in verse 17. That work which He begins in us, verses 7 to 16, He now wants to complete. He begins a work in us now that He will complete when we enter His glory. Here is the reward for those who call upon His name. They will see the King in His beauty. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And in these verses, the prophet moves from talking about the change that salvation brings in our hearts so that we walk righteously and speak uprightly. He moves from that to the promise that we will see God. And actually, he changes here in verse 17 the word is singular, your eyes, the individual believer, your eyes will, will behold the king in his beauty. Here is, here is the ultimate blessing for the believer. It reaches way beyond Isaiah's day and even Jesus' day and even our day into eternity. This is the experience of the believer that they understand that their security they have in Christ, in God, is firm. And you notice that is precisely who is being identified here. Back in chapter 32, verse 1, the king is a human king. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. It's a very human king, the picture there. But here in chapter 33, you notice, if you glance down to verse 22, the the king is the Lord. The Lord is king. So here we have this tension. Is he human? Is he divine? What is he? Isaiah leaves it open. But now we don't have to leave it open. Now with a fuller revelation, we know that the Messiah is both God and man, and therefore he is both a human and divine king. He is the king of Israel. He is the son of David, but he is also the divine king. The Messiah is the God-man. The Lord is our king. King Jesus is our king. The Lord and head of the church. That's an important thing to remember, isn't it? As we come to worship God, we come as a people, we come as a theocracy under the kingship of King Jesus. In all of our efforts, in all of our work as as ministers of the gospel, the crown rights of our Redeemer come first. It seems to me if we kept the the, the language of the crown rights of our Redeemer in our minds when we're being asked to compromise on behalf of the culture, that would clarify things for us. What am I doing when I decide 
that I will modify the Word of God in order to communicate to the culture. We have a church nearby in Philly, and, and the church is in the same denomination we're in, and in that church, in their preaching, they will never, ever articulate or explain penal substitution. Why? Because it doesn't communicate to our culture. It doesn't communicate to our culture. I want to tell you, I have told them, people in our culture are going to hell. The only thing that's going to keep them out of hell is penal substitutionary atonement. Don't care if it doesn't communicate to them. I need to tell them that. I need to explain that to them. Oh, we, we don't like to talk about hell because that really doesn't communicate to our culture. I want to say, go to Gehenna. The prophet points us to the king. And he says that those who are loyal to the king will behold the beauty of the king. Same word is used in Psalm 45 about the Messiah, the most handsome of men is one translation. And it really underlines simply the glorious and splendid personal appearance of the king. He wasn't always like that, of course. We're going to find in chapter 53 of Isaiah that he was despised for his appearance. But he's looking beyond that to the splendor. The king reigns in splendor. He puts all his enemies under his feet. Sinners in Zion are judged. He is and can only be the Messiah in the glory of his wonderful reign over the church. And so the whole argument with these people was that they should stop trusting in their kings or armies or celebrities or technologies or their therapies or whatever it was, and they should look for the king whose dominion, because the king has a kingdom, his dominion is infinite. The land of his kingdom stretches afar. They're preoccupied with little Palestine, little Israel, now little Judah and Jerusalem. The king, the king's kingdom stretches to infinity and beyond. They need to enlarge their minds. He says, you will see the king in his beauty. Then he says, verse 20, behold Zion. Behold Zion. This is the heavenly Zion. In verse 18, uh, he reflects, or he articulates the reflections of people. Your heart will muse on the terror. In other words, there'll be times when we look back and we consider what happened in our past. We'll consider the anxiety, the pain, the tension, the disease, the grief, the days of anxiety that seemed to pass so slowly, the minutes that seemed like hours, the nights that never seemed to end, the days when we cried out, will there never be an end to this? And yet, says the prophet, verse 18, there will come a day when you'll be asking about your enemies. Where is he? Where is he? You will no more see these enemies of yours. Instead, what will you see? Behold, Zion. And what a sight Zion, the city of God, is. The city of our appointed feasts. 
There was a time back in chapter 1 of Isaiah, at the beginning of his ministry, when his message to Judah and Jerusalem was this, God says, I am sick of your appointed feasts. You gather together, but I'm not there with you. But in this heavenly Zion, in this heavenly Zion, God gathers with His people. Here is Zion fulfilling her destiny in the worship of God. Your eyes will see. Your eyes will see this, he goes on to say there in verse 20. You'll see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up. Your eyes will see on that day you'll move from the realm of faith to sight. You'll move from anticipation to realization. On that day, you will see Zion, the center of our gathering to God. And now no longer under attack like the earthly Jerusalem was. And no longer a movable tent like the tabernacle was. Now everything is solid. Everything is secure. Everything is tangible. Everything is real. Everything is settled. God is in one place. God's people are in one place, and they're in one place forever. They are settled, secure, in Zion, on Mount Zion, gathered to God in prayer and praise and worship. We anticipate that, don't we? We anticipate that by faith. Every time we gather as God's people in public worship, we gather together, as it were, around the base of that heavenly Zion, and we join those who see as we do not see the King in His beauty. And together, together we join our voices with theirs in the praise of Almighty God. But, says the prophet, there's coming a day when faith will be sight, and your eyes will behold Zion, the city of our God. And in this city, verse 21, the Lord in majesty will be for us. Paul picks up that language in Romans. If God be for us, who can be against us? The Lord in His majesty will be for us. Three times, you notice, the covenant name of God is used, our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. The Lord is our judge, possibly in the sense of the book of Judges, our champion, our defender, our rescuer. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. You see how the law is seen as a gift by God to His people. The law, Lord, is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king, and he will save us. That was their issue. Their issue all along was can we trust in the Lord alone to save us? Our church numbers are shrinking, the culture is turning against us. Even the president can speak words that are targeted to make believers feel uncomfortable. The whole society, in a sense, sees the Christian as more of a threat than militant Islam. Can we trust in the Lord alone to save us? Do we have to accommodate to the culture? Do we have to shift and change our doctrine to suit the cultural demands of our people around us in society? Or do we trust the Lord alone 
to save us? That's Isaiah's question. Can I say a sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand? Can I say that and believe it? Can I say about the church, walls of salvation surround the soul he delights to defend? Can I say that? Notice the repetition. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Can I trust in the Lord alone to save his church? Well, the last two verses are his summary. And in verse 23, he contrasts the way the church is now with what the church will be. The contrast is not the picture of a great battle cruiser or cruise ship. It's a picture, verse 23, of a sailing ship that's been buffeted by the storms, a drifting hulk whose sails are torn, whose masts have fallen, whose rigging hangs loose. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. Here is a ship that's bouncing aimlessly on the waves. Here it represents an unprepared people, an unfocused people who have no goal, no focus, who, who seem to be making no progress, whose sailors maybe, whose sailors have given up on it, who, who think the ship has, has lost any meaning or any future. The ship is not primed for battle. The people of God frequently look like verse 23. You could say the church of Jesus today looks like verse 23. Battle-scarred, buffeted by the storms of persecution and error, and even outright disbelief on the part of some of its crew. But that is not its destiny. Zion, the old ship of Zion, the church of Jesus bobbing aimlessly in the ocean, as it were, will arrive at the harbor of the heavenly Zion. In fact, at the end of that verse, the prey and the spoil will be divided among the people on that boat. Earlier on, he said that people in majestic ships and in war galleys cannot get near the harbor. But this ship, it gets to the harbor. And without lifting a sword, it gets to share in the abundance of the spoil. Even the lame will take their prey. There will be an absolute reversal. And then, in this new Zion, no inhabitant will say, I am sick. And the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. This is a picture of the heavenly Zion that comes down out of heaven from God, this untroubled settlement where nothing unclean ever enters, this place from which is banished all that is accursed, this city in which the inhabitants have their sins forgiven, who've washed their robes, who've entered the city gates where sorrow has been banished forever and the former things have passed away. You glance back to verse 21. It's hard to beat the beautiful word picture that Isaiah paints of Zion, our home. 
with its far horizons and its calm vista of rivers and streams and its security and its safety. It's a beautiful place. It's a wide and expansive place. And it is a safe place. And that's where the church is going. Don't tremble for the ark. Don't be tempted to take into your own hands the work of steadying and saving God's church, which He has redeemed with the blood of His Son. He'll do that job. So when we come to see that last little picture of Zion at home at last, at home at last in the presence of God, we see that the ultimate cause is God who determined it. The immediate cause is faith, which cries out and lays hold of God by prayer. The effective cause is the work of the Savior. Verse 24, one translation, one way of translating it. These are the people who are carried away in respect of their sins. Their sins have been carried away. By Calvary, the Lord Jesus has carried away their sins. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. His gracious hand shall wipe the tears from every weeping eye and pains and groans and griefs and fears and death itself shall die. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you. You've promised to be gracious to us. You've promised to be gracious to those who cry upon your name. And as we move to a little time of prayer together now, we ask that our prayers would be shaped in the language that you've given to us. You've begun the conversation. We need to keep up with your conversation to us. We pray you would help us to pray for your Zion, your earthly people, that there would be repentance for all those who in unbelief have turned from you to other things, other figures, other powers, other personalities. That you, Lord, would, would bring us to that place where in repentance we see that we should live righteously and speak uprightly here. And hasten the day, Lord, when the ship of the church reaches the harbor. And as we trot off the ship, as it were, into that safe harbor, we enter into the joy of the Lord. Help us to anticipate that as we call upon you. Keep that the great perspective of our prayers. There is an end. The end is that day when all is hallelujah to the Lamb, in whose strong name we pray. Amen. Dr. Kelly is going to come. Well, we've heard God's word. I believe it's come from the throne and the Lord anointed our brother Liam. And the, we don't have a whole lot of time and I'm, I'm glad you took the time to preach. You opened the word. It edifies and that's exactly what we need. I just want to make 
two brief remarks, and I'm going to call on some of you to pray, and we'll need to, you know, be very succinct. God will hear. First is his presentation of the profound biblical truth that the Lord is waiting to be gracious to us. Now, our culture says, if there be a God, and there may be, the God of the church or even the God of the Jews is infinitely guilty of police brutality. If you come to him, he wants to bash your brains out. Now, that, that is why some parts of the country get so horrified if a Christian gets elected to the school board or the city council because they represent a, a God who is allegedly guilty of the worst. I don't deny there's such thing as police brutality. Sure there is. But they believe that God is guilty of it, and so therefore anything but being allowed to teach an alternative to evolution in the schools and anything but a Christian to speak up for it. So that... God is waiting, God hates you and God is waiting to get you. That is the general feeling of secularism. Yes, it is. But then, the true God is waiting to be gracious to you. God is most fully represented in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. H.R. McIntosh of Edinburgh University many years ago used to say it is only in the face of Jesus Christ that we see the heart of the Father most fully revealed. And that Jesus said come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly of heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. That's the Lord waiting to be gracious to us. And he, he sent his beloved holy son to take on human nature and live a holy life, fulfill all aspects of the law on behalf of his elect, and then pay the penalty of a broken law at the cross of Calvary. And the blood is still available to cleanse us. God waiting to be gracious, apply to him for the blood to get under it. Not waiting to Beat your brains out. He could easily do that. No, he took the beating. And with his stripes were healed. That God is waiting to be gracious. Now, this second thing I said, and then I'm going to ask three or four of you to pray. How do we get from a culture where the secularist and, and the atheist have largely taken the moral high ground in the media and the universities and the mainline churches that God hates you and is waiting to get you therefore avoid, avoid him at all costs and keep the Christians from being able to say anything in the public square. How do we get from there to the real picture of God God is waiting to be gracious to you he sent the son of his heart to be crushed to death on the cross for you. How do we get from one to the other? And, and Liam was laying it out before us, I think, absolutely right. It's going to be the relationship of the church to her Lord, 
to him who is Lord of all, we first of all, the church has got to repent of her sin, of her unbelief. One of the major things I believe the church has to repent of, and I have offended people at various places I've said this, and if I don't get asked back somewhere because I said it, it's fine to me because I've got too many places to go. And it's this, I, ch- I think a church is out of line that does not have a weekly prayer meeting. That we're going to have a theological panel tomorrow, and some of you want to get back at me, do it. I'll talk to you, and I'll get back at you. I'll try to share as your humble and loving brother what I think. But look, how do we get from God hates you out to get you to this loving Lord that sent the son of his heart and his waiting, arms stretched out not to beat you, to take you to his breast. Come unto me and I'll give you rest. We get there through the prayers of the church. That's it. First of all, the church needs to start believing this again. I mean, the evangelical conservatives, how many PCA, how many so-called reformed don't have a weekly prayer meeting? Are they superior? Has the culture got so good we don't need to pray now? I don't think so. You say being judgmental. Yes, I am. Place for it, isn't he? Fruit inspector at the very least. Not final judge. We've got to pray that the church will begin to see the king in his beauty. When we begin to do that, we're going to go to our knees. We won't be too busy on a, if it's a Wednesday night to go. We had five children and school and sports and music and all kind of things. Probably something shouldn't have been into, but they were busy. They went every Wednesday night prayer meeting at First Presbyterian in Jackson, where we lived at that time. Before that, they'd gone to Dillon. And it was our honor, and we're glad we took them. Oh, we're glad we took them. So, what I, at a time, I mean, you've got to have a break, so I don't want to be very naughty and hold you in past what the thing is. But let, let me just ask, focus it this way, two of you, to pray that the church will see the Lord in his beauty so that the church will be used to get us from God is horrible and ought not to exist, to the king in his beauty who loves us and put the son of his heart on the cross and is waiting to receive you and to be gracious. Now, I won't, <clears throat> who will pray for that? Raise your hand. Yes. All right. David. Now, I want somebody to pray that the churches will start a Wednesday night prayer meeting if they don't have them. Who will pray for that? Raise your hand. All right. The very back. And then I want a third person, and then this will be it, to pray that the churches that don't have a Sunday night 
preaching service will begin. Who pray for that? All right, that's it. Now, lead us, lead us in prayer, the three of you, and then we're going to have, have this break, all right? And I'm just going to sit on the, on the steps.
Our God, would it not be ordered your Son, do to hear us and answer us, extend your Son's kingdom through us and in us until the day breaks and the shadows fail?
of evening worship. That which was denominationally attended to 50 years ago by almost all. for praying and thanks to Liam for preaching. Now, is there anything to be said before the break?